Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Hi. Hey. Friend. <laughs> Hi, friend. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. It's Saturday, as it normally is. It's when, Saturday. When we do this, I'm real hype. I'm not gonna lie. I'm I'm excited for this conversation. I'm excited too. Like I'm ready to go in. Yeah, me too. I think this is our first, like, I think officially. I think this is our first officially nerdy, like, like yeah. topic. I yeah. think this is like about some real shit. Right. I think the other two <laughs> were just kind of like on our spirit. Yeah. But yeah. this is we're hype. Yeah. Okay. So. Today we're going to talk about gentrification. Yes. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about gentrification in all, like as much as we can. Yeah, as much as we can. As much as we are, you know, qualified to. But the main thing we're going to talk about is being a black gentrifier. Or yes. what that means or if it exists, blah, blah, blah. So, let's just, I mean, let's just, let's, I mean, let's cut the shit. Let's, let's get, get into it. it. I'm ready. So... You sent me this article, and I actually never had never read it before. Neither had sure. I. I had stumbled across it maybe like a um, like a couple weeks ago. But it was called uh, "Confessions of a Black Gentrifier." It was actually written like a few years ago. Yeah, 2011 by Howard's own yes, Shani, H-U. yes, H U Shani O'Hilton of Buzzfeed, now of Buzzfeed, but formerly of the Washington City Paper. So this article, I mean, ev- like you should, everybody should read it. Everybody should um, read it. Is like, I mean, City Paper. It's nice to see that they still come in with some heat, you know, even though it was three years ago. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, it was. I mean, this was awesome just to kind of basically say what I think we feel now. Yes, um, and I actually I felt during the time this was written the year after, maybe like not even maybe six months after I um I left DC for the last time in 2010. Yeah, I mean, I was long gone by then, but mm-hmm. it was, uh, it definitely like took me back. I mean, she, so to give, to give a little bit of perspective, so Shiny Hilton, she went to Howard and she basically talked about how, you know, she recognized her own status as a black gentrifier. Yeah. She attended Howard, saw that things were, that the population was shifting. After she graduated, she left and then returned for work. And Eric and I both went to Howard and there is already some tension between, the Howard community and the like the DC like native community that's you know people well, who were actually there yeah the greater like northwest community in yes. that specific area exactly I, it was nice to have her touch on that because yeah. that was really personal for for me and you as well but also what it was like to return as an adult and be a part of that process that you see happening as an undergraduate well first let's actually let's let's take a step back so like mm-hmm. you said some good stuff there so I want to like I want to I want to go at this incrementally I'm ready so she talked about the first thing she kind of hinted on was seeing this like evolution 
as she was at Howard, like while she was still an undergrad. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. So like, and you just basically said like, there's a tension between the Howard community and the greater like yeah. uh, areas, Northwest, or right, right, like right, Shaw, right. Shaw, like sometimes uh, maybe Petworth, Columbia Heights, yeah. LaJoy Park, LaJoy Park, Bloomingdale. And so, like, there's this tension because it's basically it's basically gentrification. And I also think the thing that she kind of didn't say that speaks on the 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 tension between the two like the two communities is the transient nature of like students. Yes. When I was in, I, I, I worked in Boston for a summer, That's which right. you know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people, like the students themselves, I worked at a summer camp, and students were really, really hyped. And then always pissed off at the end of the at the end of the summer. And what year is this again? This was like uh, two thousand five. Yeah, because it was, it was yeah, your, it was like two thousand five. Yeah, okay. So the students were always really, really happy that we were there, and then towards the end of the summer, they were really, really mad. But the parents were always extremely lukewarm to the situation. It's like, well, one, I was a minority and being a, a black person in the actual program as a teacher, but they were just really apprehensive about these newcomers who were only coming mm, for, for this, this like really short amount of time, telling them how they should like, you know, provide for this enrichment for mm. their kids and then bounce to go like, you know, do some, like do some, some party shit, you know, yeah. for the rest of the year. And I think that sentiment, while a little different, is the same at Howard. Like, you know, you have these kids who come in, they from all, like, everybody has a chip on their shoulder when they initially come in. You know, we're, quote unquote, the, the pinnacle of uh, black academic excellence. <laughs> the talented 10. The talented 10. Which I hate, but yes. Yeah, and I mean, but everybody there, while you're there, you kind of wear that shit as a badge of honor. Oh, and that's, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, it pumps through the veins yeah. of... The institution and other institutions like it, and I can totally see where that's somewhat that not somewhat where it's condescending to the people who are around, you know, who absolutely don't reap any of the uh, economic benefits of the school being there mm-hmm. and still have to deal with like drunk yeah, obnoxious kids, kids. <laughs> yes. you know, say throwing of which, parties of at, which I was on Irving Street every, every weekend. So, like, <laughs> I think that's where you see like those those like beginning parts of like what it means to be like a black gentrifier. Like that's mm. usually the kind of the first time we get the opportunity to be in that position. What's well, very interesting too. And I would be very interested to speak more with a, a group of Spelman and Morehouse graduates. Cause yeah. to be honest, I have a couple friends who are from Spelman and Morehouse, but not like Same. a huge, you know, like group that to the point where we would have sat around and talked about this before. I would imagine that there's a similar tension in some place like Atlanta. Yeah. I'm hard-pressed to come up with too many other HBCUs that have the same type of reputation that are in these urban, like, major American cities yeah. within, like, black parts of town. Yeah. Because I've been to, I've spent time in a couple other HBCUs. Like, I've been to Bowie State. I've been to Lincoln, but they're still kind of suburban or remote. Uh, Hampton also comes to mind, still kind of suburban and remote. Morgan State. Yeah. Which I think is Baltimore. Morgan State um, is Baltimore. Yeah, yeah, I don't know too much about. I'd actually be interested to hear about Morgan State as well. But yeah, it is that first. It's not just going. It's not just being a college student. It's not just being a black person. It's not just that tension between being a black person who's on that track just because of education to be upwardly mobile in this 
it's also like the HBCU. It's like there's a whole group of us. Yeah. It's not just we're, it's not just a college town. It's the nation's capital. It's not just the nation's capital. It's the chocolate city. Yeah. There's so many different layers to that, and there's so many different factors at play that really make that a very complicated and very interesting relationship. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like you don't realize, like, I mean, you don't sympathize with it as much when you're there. Like, you know, when you're initially there, you're caught up. It's almost like, it's almost like a like a airborne disease. Like we walked around with uppity Negro t shirts on. Yes. Like in the yes. city of DC. And yes. like, you know, I mean we like the there was a whole like manifesto about like, Yeah, there was what a whole thing about it. But like if I'm you know, a fifty year old like black man who has not really like had much or you know, or and is, has, has been that. irritated for probably decades by yeah, like all these damn with these kids. kids. And I'm walking. I see like I see you walking around like with a up like a uppity Negro t shirt <laughs> on. I'm gonna be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. Like, what are you doing? Exactly. And that causes like this causes a lot of tension. I mean, that's kind of like the the first part of the truth that she was telling in this article. Oh, the truth. Uh, and then she kind of touched on like how what it means to. To come back. So she said she moved away and went to mm-hmm. uh, New Jersey, worked for a little bit, and then decided that uh, she was going to move back. I think she was moving in with her like boyfriend at the time or something like that. And no, they... that wasn't her. She moved in with two other journalists. Oh, sorry. You're right. That, yeah, that, that was, was a different else. person. Mm-hmm. One in the article. But yeah, but she moved back and then to kind of witness how people relate to you coming back into this neighborhood. Yes, as, a, as, a, as like a... As a working black adult you're not yeah. just one of the kids who's in the neighborhood like you're a nine to five or just like everybody else yeah and the thing that's also really interesting about dc specifically is dc like those areas LaJoy park shaw bloomingdale like, eckington yeah mm-hmm. like they're very well known for having a strong well were. Used, like were well were. known for having a very strong black middle class yeah and that just it isn't there anymore well they're 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 moving away and they're dying because they they're older they're a lot older the oh, black yes. middle class that was there is now you know retiring and then you know quote quote unquote twilight so it's interesting to see them move back into places that used to have kind of a what would be oh, you mean say young black people move yeah back into have it. young black people move back and have them um, be in these experiences where you would have thought that it, the the environment might be a little more receptive. To something like that, but mm-hmm. it's not because of the kind of the downward spiral that that occurred in D.C. Yes, yes, crack being the primarily biggest. responsible for just a lot of the devastation that happened in D.C. in like the eighties and nineties. Yeah, and like the thing that she kind of didn't touch on, like she she admitted that it was extremely bad, and then like the neighborhood like took a turn, but like it was so bad that I was talking to. It's kind of a friend of my friend's family mm-hmm. and who, who lives in the Shaw area, like right around the corner from uh, the Carver like dorm. If you know, D.C., it's like, oh, sure. Like right down there. Mm-hmm. And so basically they were talking about how the neighborhood was so bad. Every other house was boarded up and the houses that weren't boarded up, like were not houses that you wanted to live, live in. in. Mm-hmm. And it was so bad that for five hundred dollars. Um, and to pay the back lien of taxes, you get a house, like a big three-story row house now, I know, with I, a living basement. I see your face, and I see how like completely shocked by that you are, but you have to remember, 
where I'm from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm from Metro Detroit. I used to work for the city of Detroit. And actually, um, I used to work for the governor of the city of Detroit for an elected official. And she was, oh gosh, I'm going to get killed by somebody for not remembering um, precisely what committee she was on in city council. Basically like land and zoning and, and build and business development, things like that. Yes. So when you talk about like, it was so bad, board, every other house is boarded up and you could get a house for $500. They were, they were trying to give it away. Yes. Like, and, and people still weren't taking it. You had some people who were like, okay, you know what? I'm going to play a long game. This is realistically one of the few places where I can live where I'm not going to feel like they're trying to push me out mm-hmm. and they being, you know, quote unquote, they. So, you know, I think that's interesting to really put in perspective, like how bad shit really got. Yes. Um, and then things slowly, you know, started to kind of creep back. Yeah, up. into the upswing. Uh, and I think, you know, that's definitely happening with almost breakneck pace now breakneck is breakneck is slow that's an understatement yeah like i mean it's crazy to see how how the shit is kind of turning around but even with that breakneck pace things kind of shifted like where you had where you had black people moving into those neighborhoods like i said some a lot of them like the uh the gentleman i was talking about was a kind of friend of him family this older man um named mr mr dance, dance right who at that time moved into the neighborhood and you're like, you know what? I'm going to take my time and I'm going to stake this claim. Now, there's an overwhelmingly white population moving into this neighborhood. It is... I actually can remember going you know, going to Howard and obviously spending time in Joy Park because I had a boo that lived in Carver. This is an interesting bit of information. I actually spent so much time in Carver that... I one time actually climbed over the fence to get into it to see my boot because wow. yes, I just want everybody Dedication. to know that I was dedicated. I was overly dedicated. One might call it thirst, but we're not gonna tell you that. <laughs> I mean, I was like eighteen. That's not yeah. thirst. That's just that's just how that's you gotta life. live. That's, that's real life. Yeah, exactly. It was a struggle. I cl- you know I climbed that fence in, in Birkenstock clogs. Wow, that's a talent. I mean, first of all, I was wearing Birkenstock clogs. Like there's so many. It's levels. Well, to Birkenstocks shit. are back now, quote unquote. Yeah. Like I said, levels. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Joy Park area, and I remember we had two friends who had a, a row house that yeah. they lived in there. They each paid $315 in rent for an entire two-story home yeah. in 2007 to 2008. Another one of my um, best girlfriends that I grew up with, who you also know, she moved one block behind there in 2013, 2013, and she was paying, I think, thirteen or $1,400 a month just for... The quote unquote English basement with no windows. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it. Um, shit changed. I, yeah, shit changed. And I remember the first time, 2008 was the first time I saw a little white girl, maybe four or five years old, riding a tricycle in an alley. And my first instinct was like, <laughs> yo, you gotta stop. You like, you gotta go. Like, where's your parent? You where's where your you assigned do. adult? Like, you. You gotta, you got to, where's home? Yeah. Like, what's your name? Are you lost? What part of the game is this? Right, exactly. What part of the game is this? Like, I remember just like, you know, basically thrusting my arms and my face skyward, just like, um, you know, at the end of higher learning. Yeah. Because um, I was just completely confused by the entire thing. And I remember thinking, you know, something went off in my mind where I was like, yo, this gentrification shit is really real. But not just the Joy Park, like almost, I mean, all of D.C. Yeah, I, it's, it's spreading all over. Well, when I was at school, I finished at Howard in 2009, circa 2009. And the last school year that I was there was 2008-2009. I lived in an apartment. In Columbia Heights, this beautiful luxury apartment building. And it wasn't until like the day that I, you know, I toured it, you know, so that I, you know, was able to 
sign the lease or whatever. But it wasn't until the day that I moved in that I realized this was an apartment building that I had toured with my family when my older sister, who was living in D.C. in 2004, or 2003, 2004, when she was looking to move from New York to D.C., my family and I went to D.C. to look at apartments for her um, because she was living in Africa at the time, being superwoman. And we had toured this same apartment building before it got gutted and renovated. Yeah. So I actually... You saw both sides. Yeah, I saw both sides. And I worked at The Gap in Georgetown, I think my senior year of college. And I had a few coworkers who were Mexican El Salvadoran because Columbia Heights and Mount Pleasant at that yeah. time were heavily Mexican and El Salvadoran um, neighborhoods. A lot of Peruvian a lot of, out there. Yeah. Also true. A lot of Peruvian folks lived out there too. I had plenty of coworkers who were uh, Mexican El Salvadoran at The Gap who had lived in my apartment building before it was renovated. And it was like the most bizarre feeling at 21 to be like, yo, I displaced you. Yeah. Like that was the first time that I had really confronted that. Like I displaced you. So we're like, I mean, so just to kind of frame like what the traditional outlets are for the people who were displaced, a lot of people moved out to PG County. Yes, PG um, County. You know, a lot of people moved out to basically. PG County, which is a, uh, I'm sorry, Prince George's County, which is a county in Maryland. Yeah. Uh, and then you had all, people also move to like Silver Springs mm-hmm. or like deep, deep northwest in like uh, oh I'm thinking like beyond pet like way beyond Petworth yes uh, we're almost almost um Tacoma Park yeah up there yeah. like way way up I think Tacoma Park might even technically be Maryland I can't remember but just up that general area right yeah. before you get to Silver Springs so that was where people went but I'm curious to know like did they mention like where they're like like what's that new area because that that area was. Like, even if you go back, like, there's the, I mean, there's a kind of that strip that was, like, really developed over at Columbia Heights. Oh, you mean you're talking about right where the metro was, where they eventually put up the Target. Yeah, which changed the game. Oh, I remember uh, the same girlfriend who, you know, lived in Bloomingdale was paying $1,300 a month. She lived in Columbia Heights in 2006. I went to go visit her. It took me over an hour to get from Howard to deeper into Columbia Heights, which if you were driving, it would have taken nine minutes, maybe, tops. It took because the the public transportation didn't support it because white people didn't live up there. Yeah. You remember when the yellow line, the yellow line yeah. didn't go above <laughs> maybe Shaw Howard or didn't yeah. go above Fort Town. It was something like that. The no, yellow line was, uh, didn't go above Petworth. Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon. You're right. Yeah. The yellow yeah. line didn't go. Well, no, no, no. Yeah, I think the yellow line actually. I think it didn't go above. It stopped at Mount Vernon. And then they took it up to Fort Totten because white people started moving into the Petworth area. They started moving north, yeah. and the they made the public transportation follow. Well, the first time that I went to go visit this friend in Columbia Heights in 2006, I had to... There was a 30-minute trip on the metro to get to the Columbia Heights stop, which now is filled with bars, restaurants. There's amazing pizza over there. There's a Five Guys. There's a Pollo Compero, also delicious. There's mad happy hour, dry cleaners, luxury apartment buildings, all sorts of things. By 2008, that whole area was built up. In 2006, when I went to go visit her... None of that was there. There was no there was no target. There was no giant. There was nothing. Like when you say breakneck pace, I don't know if people really understand. It's like this happened within the span of us going to school. Yes. Literally yes. like four years. Yes. I mean the crazy I, like what I remember about that, even speaking to I mean, people talk about food deserts, but like that's like a transportation void of how you get out there. They would just tell you to walk. Yes. Like if you were trying to get out there, they were like, Yeah, you could try to take some buses. But you might, you might as, well as well just walk. walk. Like, it was like a 40-minute walk <laughs> to get out there. And, like, 
I mean, as a as a freshman in college, you're like, what? I gotta walk 40 minutes, minutes to get where? <laughs> and this isn't even like the other side of DC. This is like well, all within the same. It's all within, not just the it's same. It's all within Northwest. I was gonna say like the same quadrant, yeah. but also like the same general area. Yeah. You were talking about going from like Tenley Town. Tenley Town is way far top north of like Northwest quadrant of DC, but like. I'm not talking about walking up there. That's way out of the game. Like, we're talking about just, like, this ballpark of a few neighborhoods, and you couldn't get around yeah. within it until and until gentrification yeah, happened. Mr. Smith moved into Mr. it. Mr. Smith. <laughs> See, so that was D.C. I stayed in D.C. a little bit after I finished school, and I stayed in that same apartment building, and I watched the neighborhood change. And I had the opportunity to go to D.C. last spring, and I hadn't been for two years, and it had changed even more. It felt like I was at a theme park for like yuppies yeah i was just like okay this is this is weird but i know that you after you left howard you came up here yeah so i came i came straight to bed-stuy and it was really interesting moving like moving up here i mean you to bed-stuy in what 2000 and 2008 i moved that's right literally two weeks after i graduated and uh or finished <laughs> but um, hey, everybody gotta do it sometime yeah so literally two weeks after my like last class I moved up, uh, moved up here. We almost moved to Harlem, my roommate and I, and then dodged uh, a bullet. Yeah, <laughs> man. Uh, and so we moved to Nostrand in between Gates and Monroe. And don't get it twisted. I mean, best I was already like in the process of being gentrified, like hard, like hard body, mm-hmm. but it was still the hood. Like when we first got there, I used to wear a red Nationals cap all the time. Uh, <laughs> And, like, I would be walking down the street, and I would get all the head nods. Like, yo, what's up? What's up? And so I remember going into the barbershop, and uh, I wore my nationals cap. And they were like, yo, you from here? And I started talking. They were like, yeah, you're not from here. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. They was like, yo, you might want to, you might just want to be cognizant of, like, your hat. Because I was like, well, what was you talking about? They were like, well, this is this is blood territory. And I was like, <laughs> oh. I see. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so I stopped that real quick. <laughs> real quick. Just because, I mean, people were people were giving me the nod. Eventually, like, I got cool with everybody in the neighborhood <laughs> because mm-hmm. I went to the barbershop. But it was still a, it was still a very interesting place yeah. to live. And now we have, uh, you know, lovely vegan bakeries. We have... <laughs> You know, we have restaurants that have been where the the head chef has been featured on like Food Network and, and all these other. You've really been here six years. I'm sorry, I'm just like that's yeah. sinking in for me. And everything has changed. Like literally, everything has changed. I feel like for every like for every black person I see, mm-hmm. I now see a white person. I see three. Yeah, I mean, I was trying. <laughs> well, to if I'm on Bedford, if I'm estimate. on, if you're on Bedford, yeah. It's crazy. Well, you, I lived actually, this is an interesting fact, if you're listening, Eric and I lived together for a short period of time (laughs) with another friend of ours and his dog in a two bedroom apartment because that's how we roll because we're family Uh, and we made it work. That's teamwork make the dream work. Teamwork (laughs) makes the dream work. But uh, I moved here in 2012 after I had stayed in DC for a while, moved back home to the Metro Detroit area, was with my parents and I came from there in Michigan to here. Uh, I moved to Bed-Stuy. I was only here for maybe five or six months. And then I moved up to Harlem to live with my sister and a friend of hers. And similar, there was a, like, where I was in Harlem was similar to what you're describing when you first moved to Bed-Stuy. Like, still, when I told people where I lived in Harlem, they were like, oh, 
Like even, you know, cab drivers dropped me off on my block and they were like, hey, uh, just like watch out for yourself. <laughs> just, exactly. Just watch like, out. Just like oh, you be cognizant. Right. Fortunately, everybody in the neighborhood, I love living there. Oh, I, I did love living there. No offense to Harlem, but it's, it's boring <laughs> to hang out there. Sorry. Sorry. But I liked living there because everybody, everybody in my neighborhood knew who I was, my yeah. sister. They knew what my parents looked like. They knew who all my friends were. If, if there were people in my apartment, when I was walking in, one of my neighbors would be like, hey, uh, your roommate has uh, his aunt, his aunt, his mom, I think two of his cousins, maybe three. Because you're not going to find that out. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because I'm not going to find that out. But that's, that's one of the things I liked about living up there. But it was still... Um, a colorful place. There were, I mean, if I'm being honest, on my block alone, at least once a month, there was a candlelight vigil for somebody who yeah. had been murdered, who was on, like on my corner, like right, which is right where the, the front of my apartment building was. But I moved back to Brooklyn a month ago. So I hadn't lived here for two years. And even just the two years that I was gone, and I would come down here, you know, yeah. to hang out with you guys. But just in the two years that I was gone, to me, I mean, the gentrification, it's, it was sweep, it feels sweeping. And the interesting thing, like, there's almost, like, these markers. Like, I feel like people, initially, initially when gentrification starts, I feel like people, you know, people are like, man, like, the people, who, the legacy residents in the neighborhood mm-hmm. are like, man, but they're, sometimes it's like, okay, well, I'm going to see where this goes, because usually you get the, the, uh, the benefits from, uh. From Having, a social services point of view, absolutely you know, change you population, pr- police presence, mm-hmm. like you know, you you know, you get more options. And it is it is nice. It, yeah. Those things are nice. And the markers, I feel like there was this place um, at the time it was called Sweet Revenge. Um, now it's called One Last Shack, and it was this like interesting little bar, and we used to go to go to it on the weekends, and it was a cool spot. And I remember going there for the first time and being like, "Yo." What what's up with the demographics in this place? Like <laughs> it was literally you had forty five ish fifty you know fifty year old black people who were from the neighborhood mm-hmm. you know very much like very from the neighborhood. Wait, I didn't, that was that was how that bar started mixed out mixed with the like hipster white kids mm-hmm. drinking you know having a playing some music chilling. having a good time chilling. It was the it was the weirdest coolest thing to witness because it was very like you know i mean maybe it was the you know the liquor flowing but it was a very harmonious <laughs> environment place. and like so you would go there and like i remember like initially that's why my roommate and i were really attracted to it because it was one of those places where like we didn't feel out of place we appreciated what what the kind of the hipster white element brought to brought to the table mm-hmm. in terms of the bar because they had real cool drinks mm-hmm. um they were reasonably priced decent music there too yeah really good really good music um, in addition to that, it was also cool to be able to like party with people from the neighborhood. And that's actually, we ran into like neighbors and stuff there mm-hmm. and we would talk to them. And then next thing you know, we see them on the street and they're like, Hey, what's up? Like, how's it going? Yeah. That bar is not the same anymore. And like, not, I mean, you can, you can guess which direction demographics shifted to like, yeah. and not to say that it's them, you know, that I don't, I don't necessarily even know that they pushed the you know like needle the in any way yeah. yeah but it happened as a result of there being just a larger influx of uh, yeah younger more money white folks moving in yeah so I mean I think that's really interesting the other thing too is like some of the things you were saying in terms of like the white girl riding her bike in the alley or even like 
you know, me walking down the street with the red hat, but still getting the head nod, mm-hmm. we didn't have, like, the fear we had was less than probably what we should have had. But even even though we were less afraid, or I was less afraid mm-hmm. within the neighborhood, I still was the one who had something to worry about because they weren't going to touch that little white girl in the in the in the alley. No, 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 no. Nobody was going to touch that's that. That's too. That's too much. That's too yeah. risky. Because like the shit's going to go down. Like yeah. it's going to be a cop on. It's going to be a cop on. That was every... one of the best things that she touched on at the yeah. very end of that city and, paper piece. And I think that's like such a like. I mean, I don't want to get into like respectability, like politics, in the terms of like you know we should be, you know, I don't think there's a there's a way we should redirect our crime or anything like no. that. But <laughs> no. I just think it's interesting that we can we feel like even from you know a crime perspective, we can't touch like gentrifying that, but there's nothing that can be done about it. You know what I'm saying? Like in mm-hmm. terms of like okay, so we see these people coming in. You know, we don't necessarily know what we can do about this. We're mm-hmm. being displaced, but we just gotta watch because if there's anything that happens to them, yeah, no, then then like us, we who were here already, speaking as those people, but we who were here already, we're we're toast. Yeah, but the interesting thing, what you just said, speaking as those people, we're, right? We're not we're those not people. Those people, <laughs> no, we're the people. We are the people who have moved in, and like I, I, you're at least from a city, yeah. I'm from a suburb. The name of my hometown is Farmington Hills. It's been voted. I'm, when I tell you it's been voted Michigan's safest city wow. a lot of times. That's, <laughs> That's where I'm amazing. from. And I, I went from there to D.C. And then, you know, back home, back to D.C., back home here. I never forget. I never forget that this is not where I'm from. I never forget that this is not, not just... Not just geographically, because I'm very Midwestern. I get asked on a regular basis if I'm from California or Canada, just based upon the way that I talk. Yeah. But I don't even, like, just the little the little details that, that you pick up from or that you're used to or that you appreciate from if you grew up in a city or if you're from a city, those are not beholden to me. Those are not things that I identified with from a very young age. All I know about living from, live, all I know about living in cities I learned from 17 to now. Yeah. And I, yeah, so I'm, I'm always cognizant of the fact that I am an outsider. Like I am, you know, coming into somebody else's space and, you know, we've, we've discussed it a little bit. We've gotten into it even just within this conversation, how we know that we're technically outsiders, but we still have a level of ownership. We have a level of ownership. We have a level. We are, we're outsiders, but only, I don't want to say only by so much because I don't want to, I don't want to put words in somebody else's mouth. Yeah. But I, I have to think that there's a difference between the way, the reasons why we are, we're here, like even why, the reasons why we're here and the reasons why maybe like a young white person of similar, you know, social status. Gym. Yeah. Why, why, <laughs> of gym. but why, why, why do you, why do you choose to live here? Why are you here? Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley High Performance Sofas and Recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. 
Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams. Now celebrating 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams is the originator of everyone's favorite Lux Home Blanket. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort, as its ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are each made with premium materials. Get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code PODCAST15. Well, honestly, I'm in best eye because... I would, it's, it's hard to say, like, one, people say, oh, first, because it's cheap. And actually, that's not really the case. I don't know, my because, rent is cheap. I mean, my rent is, is, is pretty yes, nice. Yeah, <laughs> okay, so let's be real. But, yeah, I mean, it's okay. Okay, so maybe first, because it's cheap. Mm-hmm. But secondly, because I love, like, I love walking out of my apartment in the morning and seeing black people walk their kids to school makes me happy every single morning. I didn't grow up seeing that. I didn't grow up, I never, I didn't, if I wanted to see black people taking their kids to school in the morning where I grew up, I'd have folks carrying mirrors <laughs> by me, my sisters, and my parents. Yeah. I could do that. They could stand, showing me my reflection at the bus stop. Yeah. Um, but that's about it. I love, I, I live here because it's important. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel safe. It makes me feel affirmed. To live around other black people in a black neighborhood and to see families and to see kids. Like, I, we both live near this. Full disclosure, Eric and I live around the corner from each other. Literally. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and so we both live near the same park. And I love passing through there and seeing and hearing kids play and things like that. Like, those things feel good. And I like seeing, I like being a part of that. I like knowing the people in my neighborhood. Same. And it's like the, the thing that's kind of scary about this is like, I don't know. In the hood, people say like I, I had this perspective. Like when I was when I was fifteen, and you're from Memphis. I'm from Memphis. I'm from North Memphis, and North Memphis, like the area that I don't want to get it twisted. I wasn't. I'm not from the hood. Hood. I'm from like a pretty pretty nice area of the hood. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a place where you know people are going to be like when you tell someone you're from North Memphis, they're like, oh, you're from North Memphis. Mm-hmm. But like my street, you know, we don't have. It's not folks always just hanging out on the street. And if it is, it's probably somebody's grandmama coming out and be like, yo, y'all need to go home. Y'all need to get out of here. There's kids around. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my particular experience wasn't as bad as it could have been. But it was very much a kind of an urban environment. Um, and the one thing I noticed is that, like, so you grow up. You know, and if you were lucky enough to have really involved parents who, you know, were on your ass and made sure that you got the education that you were looking for. You went to school and you never came back. You never came back. Mm-hmm. You went to school, you got a good job, and you moved to one of the suburbs or you moved to, you know, a more fluent neighborhood and you never looked back. You came back to visit grandma, mm-hmm. but that was it. And like in high school, I had like a really intense mil- militant, like black nationalist phase. Oh, it ended. <laughs> so, I didn't realize it no, ended. Well, to a certain degree. Okay. <laughs> 
Uh, capitalism. You know, what are you going to do? <laughs> but, um, but no, so my whole goal was like to raise money and to be able to encourage people to come back to the hood. Mm-hmm. Come back to the hood. Like you were Marcus Garvey. I was. We you was. Do you it. were North we Memphis Marcus Garvey. <laughs> but I mean, obviously, I don't live there. You don't. <laughs> I don't live there. Uh, but more so because of my like the industry that I work in. Mm-hmm. But I knew when I was moving somewhere that I wanted to live in an environment that was relatively like like urban, not a place not necessarily. I didn't. I didn't come to New York to live in the hood, but I wanted to live around people like myself Mm -hmm. to you know attempt to be some sort of example but also attempt to be able to bond with people who are different from me because i've seen those experiences before and i know that you know everybody is a person everybody just out here trying to make it yeah uh so anyway the thing that i think that is different about us coming to this to this neighborhood is that when we come to this neighborhood it doesn't it we cause displacement i don't want to i don't want to Mm-mm. We cause I and we I cause struggle some with that. displacement, but we don't cause the level of displacement. Like when we come to the neighborhood, even when we're coming from a more affluent perspective, mm-hmm. that doesn't make that neighborhood hip. <laughs> Eric. That neighborhood is no is not up and coming. That is the truth, though. You know, it's the same. The perspective is the same. People mm-hmm. aren't really, you know, like looking at it any differently. But you know, when you have, as a friend of mine <laughs> used to call, when you have the pioneers who come to the neighborhood, I'm, ch- I'm choking right now. <laughs> I have tears. Like, when they come to the neighborhood, then all of a sudden, this shit is cool, mm-hmm. and that's when that's when things really go down. And like Ta-Nehisi Coates said, uh, like in in the uh, the case for reparations. Mm-hmm. Mention the fact that literally, even when we come at our most affluent, we're still yes, like I think forty percent. We still make forty or fifty percent less than a white person who is yeah, like the the, the at the same relative average class. income. Yeah, the a middle class black person tends to live in an area where like the 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 average income or the median income is much lower than where a middle class white person would live. Exactly. So. I'm not going to say I don't feel as bad, but I don't feel that my presence here, and this is something I've talked with with a few neighbors, and, you know, this doesn't justify it, but I don't feel like we're coming with the the mindset to change the neighborhood Mm-mm. in the ways that the neighborhood is changing. Well, you're, you, I feel like, I, and because I, I, I have, I've only been back in Brooklyn for a little while, like maybe two months, but when I was in Harlem, I had a really long conversation with one of my neighbors. Um, before I left and she was just like you know you have people like you and your sister and your roommate and a couple of people in the building who move in he's just like you know you guys are young black people obviously are educated but you're not coming here with the intention of disrupting what we already have going on yeah and she's like and I'm cool with you like this is cool like what y'all being here is okay and like you said it doesn't necessarily justify it but the motivations behind my presence in Harlem or my presence here I would have to guess are going to be different than the motivations of like maybe a young white person. And also, like you said, the what happens. Yeah. Like nothing happened. I was in my neighborhood for two years and it's interesting. The amount of change that happened in bed while I was gone is a similar amount of change that, that happened in my neighborhood while I was there. My neighborhood in Harlem when I was there. The first year that I was there, if I saw any black people, they were like me. Yeah. You know, if I saw rather if I saw any black gentrifiers, they were like me. But or rather, if I saw any gentrifiers, period, they were like me. They were black. They were young. 
But the second year that I was there is when almost it felt like just overnight I started to see many more young white people. And, you know, lo and behold, like the, around the corner, I used to have this amazing McDonald's. <laughs> and like kitty corner from the McDonald's, like right across the street, they put like this really, you know, cute, sexy new restaurant. And it annoyed me just because we would have like, you know, I mean, I, I would have liked to have had a restaurant and the people in my building would have liked to have had a restaurant. Like I was talking to my neighbor and she was just like, you know, I'm considering leaving Harlem. She's like, because there's so many, there's more to do. She's like, there's more to do in other boroughs. There's more to do in other cities. Um, she's like, only since they've had the younger white folks moving in, have they started to put the restaurants in. And, And she actually said once, you know, they, they established their clientele and once, you know, those those businesses come in, I'm not necessarily gonna be welcome. Yeah. Um, because they then then the prices elevate as the neighborhood rises. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that makes it for this this new this new hip and, and upcoming restaurant that's on the block, you know, then they can charge a premium mm-hmm. because the people there can now afford it. Mm-hmm. And that continues in to create the type of people who can afford it coming in. And so like the one thing that I wanna clarify though, is I don't think that like I actually don't Fully blame the pioneers who move in. No, they're making for the gentrification. They're so. So I think you're gonna say what I'm saying, mm-hmm. but, but like they're taking advantage of a system and not taking it, not even taking advantage. They're just they're making an individual choice. They're making an individual choice, but that's those choices are are supported by a system that was set up long before they got here. Long before they got here. So you have zoning changes mm. you have you have commercial real estate changes like how people like create capital investment plans for different neighborhoods mm-hmm. developed by the city you have you have just simple condo plans people selling and moving out all of these things create the environment um that's right for gentrifying a neighborhood mm-hmm. like i would say probably like three to four years before the actual like real hardcore shifts start taking place so like you can't i can't fault jim no. For, for moving into a condo, you know, right next to the projects, and 10 years later, the projects get torn down to build more condos because yes. he want to live in a condo. Well, I can't even necessarily blame anybody who wants to live, like like we both admitted, our rent is it's, cheap. It's cheap. I'm, what I'm paying here, like currently, I have access to a backyard. Yeah. I live on the first floor. I have washer and dryer in unit. I have a full basement full of storage that's just for my unit, myself and my two roommates. I have a dishwasher. I have all stainless steel appliances. My bedroom that I have currently in Brooklyn is larger than my suburban bedroom in Michigan that I grew up in. Okay? Like I have I don't have enough furniture currently in my bedroom to support the space. And I pay about as much, if not maybe less, than what I would pay in Detroit if I was living uh, there in rent. No, no, no. look, I know, I know how much. I know how much it costs, though. Is what I'm telling in you. In Detroit or in, in De- Farmington Hills? No, I don't. I would never want to live in Farmington Hills. No offense, <laughs> unless I was living with my parents, which I loved. But no, in actual Detroit, if I wanted to, uh, it's not. It's not. It's not that it's not as far off as you might think. I'll put it to you like that. Like maybe if I wanted to live like in the most popping downtown area, there's going to be a huge disparity. But to be in an area that I like. Living how I'm living currently right now in Bed-Stuy, the difference may be $300 a month. Which, if you really take a step back, that's not as big as you would think between um, a gentrifying and, and desirable neighborhood in Brooklyn and a desirable neighborhood in Detroit. That's deep. Because in Memphis, 
like for what I pay here, I could have a three bedroom house. I could have a th- I I could have I could have, I could about, have the same. And I'm even talking to about rent. Like, I, I could rent this. I could rent a similar space. Like I live I live with my girlfriend, obviously as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking about what I pay. Like not even our full rent. Just you. Just what I pay. I oh, could have a three I will bedroom say house this in a I, good neighborhood. It, that one thing is true. Well, that's the tricky thing between renting and owning, even when I think about it in Detroit. And if I wanted to go, I could take my bonus. <laughs> Don't even get me started. I could take my bonus. You get a bonus? <laughs> First of all, you treat. Yes. Oh, yeah. Don't get excited. You got money. I got money. Right. So I can take my bonus. I can maybe take two of my bonuses because I get them every quarter just to let everybody know. Balling. Uh, balling. Right. I could take two of my bonuses and I could put together a down payment for a house yeah. in Detroit. But when I'm talking about living in a desirable neighborhood just, as far as just rent concern, when I was looking at moving out of my parents' house, I was like, hey, nope, this is not going to happen. I'm going to stay living with y'all. Because the prices were not, it wasn't terribly too much different um, to have the same thing that I want here. But you were talking about, yes, I, I don't I don't necessarily blame somebody for wanting to take advantage of having some cheap rent and being able to live someplace that they like and being able to live someplace that's by bars and by stores and by subway stops. But... That actually reminds me of this article that you sent to me um, from the Billfold. Yeah. Which was about... So we've already established out in the general world and also within the confines of this conversation that gentrification sucks major balls. Which some act, people would disagree. Some people would disagree. Well, some people... Some people on the on the some, right side of the Yeah, the some equation. people on the right side of the But, you know, that's life. But, yes, gentrification generally sucks. But... Um, this guy, I can't remember his name. It was like Joshua, yeah. Josh Mitchum. Josh Mitchum and the Billfold was like, okay, gentrification is lousy. Now what? That was actually a really interesting. That was a really interesting article because he was like, okay, everybody knows we don't like it. Everybody knows it's ugly. Everybody knows it displaces people who were in an area originally or who could afford a specific area originally and replaces them with these people who have a lot more money and thus get better services and, um, and more access to the things that they might need and want. But he came with some really interesting and salient points about how an economically diverse neighborhood does not serve like the main capitalist tenant yeah. of being able to, you know, get the most amount of money. Generate growth. Yes, to generate growth. Get the most amount of money that you can by by you know, expending the, the least amount of resources. And so, I mean, to take it back to my militant black nationalist phase, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I understand that that's how, that's how our country is set up, but that's not necessarily, I, I don't think that that's how our neighborhoods should be run. No, I don't think it's acceptable. And, and I'm not saying even our neighborhoods. I'm saying neighborhoods in general. Like at the end of the day, the place where I live and raise my kids should not, it's, it's sole purpose and focus should not be to create economic wealth. Does yes. that make sense? No, like, I understand. It should be to That can be a goal. That can be a, that can definitely be a part of it, but it should be to cultivate an environment where people can pursue, you know, quote unquote this, you know, the American dream, mm-hmm. whatever. You know, I can pursue um, an environment where I can raise my kids in a like where they can get an education that's going to prepare them for their future. Mm-hmm. I can live safely. Mm-hmm. I can you know have access to the uh, the things that I need, the and supplies also and services. Live around people like for me, it's very important to live around people that look at look like me because for more than half of my life, I did not. 
But also, I like living around... I like living in a diverse environment. I like yeah. living around other people who have different life experiences than I do. I like being a part of a community that is diverse. But yeah, like you said, there's no, I think that there's, there's a way there's, there needs to be a way for that to be incentivized, which is one of the, one of the main points that he brought up in the piece that I really appreciated. Well, so the, I mean, the interesting thing about that is like, okay, so I mean, his, the, the, the title of the, of the article is like, okay, gentrification is lousy. Now what? So like, I mean, the I've had a lot of conversations. So I work in uh, digital strategy for politicians and advocacy organizations. And mm-hmm. everybody, like gentrification is, is starting to become an issue to the magnitude for where larger politicians are actually having to address it. And it's a very difficult, like, it's a very difficult and fine line of how these, these politicians I can can only begin imagine. to... To attack it, and it's one of those things because you can't you can't win with any real constituency because if you say well we're fight I'm coming down for fighting gentrification and you're saying I'm excluding people from moving into this neighborhood in benefit of the people who are already there, mm-hmm. not necessarily saying that I'm going to provide them with any of the services to better that neighborhood on its own. Exactly. So I mean I think the thing that needs to happen I don't have. The concrete, and I mean, I mean, I don't have any of the answers. No, but, I don't have one. Um, I do think, I mean, I have some thoughts. That's why we're here. So neighborhoods really should focus on, should redefine the conversation in the sense of, if you, it's not that we're stopping gentrification to create segregation. Mm-mm. It's just that it's okay to have cultural enclaves. Like it's, you know, people like to congregate with other people who, who are look like, like them. them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's fine. And that's okay. People should be able to come in that neighborhood. People should be able to leave that neighborhood mm-hmm. of any different race or nationality. That's fine. But what you want to do is create policies that will preserve people's ability to maintain a life in one particular neighborhood exactly. without being forced to Out. leave. Yes. And that's, I think, you know, without being for not only that, like not just to maintain without being forced to leave, but being forced to leave and move into a different area that's with, similar, that's similar to where they just left. Yeah. So it's like you're already in one situation where you were lacking certain things that you may have wanted or needed. But then you have to move. But at least it was yours. Yeah. At least you're used to it. You have to move into a completely different situation that's lacking the same resources. That sucks for lack of many better Better words. And it's interesting to see that. I mean, I think this conversation is extremely relevant in the case of like New York and San Francisco, which both are having extreme development booms, you know, and there's this new focus on mixed development housing. So like Mm. you have, you know, like basically, basically de Blasio has come out and said that, you know, okay, we understand that development has to happen, Mm -hmm. but there's going to, you're going to have to provide some level of, uh, of, of housing that's priced at a lower level to make it, you know, to create these more diverse communities. Absolutely. And I think that that is great. And that's a great first step. But the thing about that is that still, you're still taking these spaces um, that were normally already providing housing to people who were of low and, you know, middle middle income. Mm -hmm. I don't even, I mean, the middle middle class doesn't really exist as much anymore. You're taking those spaces away still and replacing them with something that's only giving a very small percentage back to the people who live there. And 
until you know until we can find from a development perspective a way to build you know low and middle income housing that is profitable i don't think that that's going to that's really going to make any big difference well i used to work i used to work in apartment leasing i've done every single job i was a nanny yeah (laughs) i used to work in apartment leasing and uh there were a few times i worked on properties that had mixed income housing and it was tough to make money so i I can understand if you own a property you want to get the most for your money yes you you have a business just like anybody else and you want to be able to make you want to be able to make money it can be hard to make money when you're doing mixed income housing, but also there are, like you said, that goes, that that can go back to a policy thing, uh, like a policy issue. You know, what are we doing to incentivize? What are we doing to support economically diverse communities, which a lot of times in America also will, will result in racially um, diverse communities. But I can't help but think about how that's not going to happen yeah. and how far, how far, how far fetched of a dream that like that feels like a far fetched dream, yeah. especially like you sent me um, also a really great item from Gawker about you know like these former Wall Street guys starting this shit. Sorry, <laughs> I just <laughs> so realized I just realized what you were talking about. Yes, okay, the okay. investment idea for Brooklyn, uh, where this guy who worked at Goldman Sachs, you and also this like other like you know capital fund started this program called City Shares and that enables uh, participants to, if I may read straight, re- part, uh, participants to reap rewards from increasing apartment demand in gentrifying areas. Basically, investors, they pledge at least $100,000, which is a lot of money to me. <laughs> but right, if yeah. you don't, but like, you know, it's it's that, that middle step that barely exists. It's like that vapor of a middle step between people like us and people who have like millions of dollars to be able to buy, you know, an entire building. Yeah. You, if you if you can put to, if you can slap together a hundred thousand dollars, you can basically like join this neighborhood focused fund that allows you to be a partial owner of a group of buildings and be able to benefit from from people moving into those buildings and living in them. You know, you look at that, and then also you know the, the uh, another Gawker item that I shared with you about that guy who's looking to develop Fulton Street. Yeah. That shit. So, I mean, I want to come back to the... I mean, uh, we, we need to talk about this <laughs> We do. But we, we also need to talk about this thing that you just mentioned um, in terms of, like, pooling, creating these funds. Ooh. Basically, what they're doing is they're creating venture capital funds yes. for ge- specifically... For, for gentrification. For specific like, neighborhoods. And, for, and, and they found... I mean... I'm not gonna it's lie. It's smart shit. I was gonna say it's this shit smart, is genius. Like hundred thousand dollars is such a fucking low sweet spot because if you if you got money, hundred thousand dollars is nothing. Yeah. And if you don't have money, hundred thousand dollars doesn't feel crazy. Crazy. Yeah, it's not. You're kind of like mm, exactly. It's not a million. You're just kind of like mm, maybe I could. I might. I might. You don't struggle trying for a little bit, but you right. Know but we might could do this. We're gonna get some of these pioneers in these buildings. <laughs> Get, we're gonna make this get these work. checks, make this yeah. work. Uh, so, like, I mean, that shit—that's crazy. Because what that does is, I feel like that's a game changer. If there's something like that takes off, think like, how much is that going to accelerate the funnel for these neighborhoods being redeveloped and people being displaced? Well, not only that. Oh, go ahead. Well, no, no. I mean, I was just gonna say like, there's that, and it leads to this Fulton Street development, um, which is this PDF you sent me where. You know, Fulton Street, like, I mean, you talk, you, you hear, you, I remember Biggie. 
Talking okay. about hanging out on Fulton Street, you know what I'm saying, doing like hood rat shit with his friends. With his friends, basically. right. <laughs> and, and you know, that was my perspective of Fulton Street. Not to say that that's a perspective I should have. And it's very was different introduction? now. But that was my introduction. And Fulton Street is, you know, an amazingly diverse like it's vibrant. I love it. Like it's it's popping all the time. Yes. I mean it, it's no hate hate to hate to bring Harlem back into this. It's no Lenox Avenue yeah. or 125th Street. But no, Fulton Street is popping. But so this PDF that you sent me. And I was oh like, my God, we were both at work and I was just like, yo. I had to, I pull everybody around. I was like, yo, you gotta see this shit. Like you you have to see this shit. What do you see? And they're like, oh, they redeveloped they're they're like you know introduce they're redeveloping the neighborhood and you know they're gonna introduce <laughs> some nicer storefronts. I just pulled it up just to let y'all know. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but this it's basically called like the Fulton Street Project, where this guy has I love it. The first the title of the first of the first like page of this document says Bedstuy Reimagined. So they show a stretch of Fulton Street with like normal storefronts. So I see a dry cleaner, I see some fashions. I see a discount t-shirt store. Fashion. You know, this the kind of shit I'm used fashion to. Fashion show with no fashion. Right. Fashion show. Sorry. This is the kind of shit I'm used to. You, you brought Sheree into this. Sorry. <laughs> and that's, but that's why I fuck but with you. Check. That's why I fuck with you. That's why we're friends. But yeah, it, you know, just normal shit. You see normal storefronts. And then they're like, Fulton Street. Next page. Fulton Street. Re-envision. And you just see all these bizarre... Well, what's interesting, now that I'm looking at the photo, I see these very, very yuppie, like, SUV. It looks kind of like... Maybe what a Ford Explorer used to look like. It's a hybrid vehicle. Hybrid vehicle. You're right. Probably a hybrid vehicle. Something that looks maybe like a... Actually, I think this just is like a regular Hyundai. I, I think that's a Tesla. I knew you were going to say... Stop. <laughs> Stop. And um, you see some guy who's dressed like Garth from Wayne's World um, in front of these really intense, like very sleek... Glass. Gla- all glass. All Storefronts. Like, storefronts. And you know, they're talking about like... And then you go to the next page. It looks like... It looks like some shit from Woody Allen movie. The thing, the shit, it like, does. It looks so, like, like, how we should reimagine Bed is a place with no black people. No, not even no black people. No, how, nobody. How good would that be? Right. Like, and they, and no, and they call, and they, these are the headings a neighborhood of character, a collection of local mom and pop stores. Because never mind the fact, I'm sure AA doubles. Right, a Doubles that serves delicious Trinidadian food on no strength. I'm pretty sure that's a mom and pop store. I don't think that Walmart has their finger. On the doubles market of Brooklyn. Like, I don't think that's what's happening. But they, it's very interesting to see someone else's vision of what a cafe looks like, of what a restaurant, what constitutes a restaurant, what makes a bar, what mom and pop means. It's really creepy because it's like this whole, this is how they're envisioning the future of Brooklyn. And I told you what that reminded me of. Like, because I'm like an armchair, you know, I'm armchair interested in architecture and things like that. It reminded me of Le Carbusier. Which um, I'm probably slaughtering because I don't speak French and I'm not Canadian. Um, and also, and his ideas about the city of tomorrow and this whole concept of urban renewal and it reminded me of a neighborhood from D- in Detroit called Lafayette Park, which was uh, Lafayette Park is this beautiful. It's I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's this gorgeous, gorgeous um, housing development that was designed by the famous architect Mies van der Rohe, and it was. You know, this thing that they thought of in Detroit when this is before Coleman Young, so before when white people were still in charge and pre riots in the early 1960s, they got rid of this neighborhood called Black Bottom, um, which is where black folks lived and had really been ravaged during the Depression. 
They got rid of this, and, and, and actually, especially also post World War Two. Yeah, so say as a result. Yeah, World War Two. So they um, after the Depression, after World War Two, Black Bottom was just done. They went through rather the city went through, raised the area, put I seventy five and I three seventy five there, and then decided to put to uh, you know to give them uh, give us a little bit of urban renewal flavor, and put this. The Scandinavian architect just let him have at. And Lafayette Park is a gorgeous neighborhood. Like, I mean, Google it. It's beautiful. But it's looking at this, um, looking at this, you know, this re like, you know, Fulton Street reimagining. Yeah, this re-envisioning of Fulton Street and this re-envisioning of Bed-Stuy and looking at these sketches of what the future might look like. I could not help but think about home and about the city, these cities of tomorrow and about you know, Le Corbusier and about, um, and about, you know, the, the Lafayette Park, about getting rid of these areas that, that have these rich cult, like Aretha Franklin's father had a church that was in Black Bottom that does not, that area doesn't exist anymore. That's culturally significant. They literally raised the whole neighborhood. They literally got rid of the whole neighborhood to put in this housing development where I want to say Traditionally, white people lived there. That's what, that and they still question, are there now. Really, like it wasn't really clear in terms of in terms of how the neighborhood, like the demographics of the neighborhood right now. And that's what I, I well the dem, well the demographics of the neighborhood right now is mostly like moneyed. It's going to be your upper middle class folks who can afford gotcha. to live there. I actually I'm a creep. Um, <laughs> I used to drive by there when I worked for the city and even when I probably especially when I didn't I had a lot of free time because I had no job I would drive by there and I would walk there's also an apartment building that's nearby and I would ask to tour the different (laughs) sorry I'm a creep I'm realizing this now I would ask to tour um, different units so that I could get an idea of what What was going on over there yeah, you're gonna have maybe some some more money, like maybe like yuppie or you know maybe like uh, middle aged couples who are there, um, or middle aged families that families that are headed by middle aged people that are gonna be there. I know that Brooklyn is a different animal. I know that DC is a different animal. I know that they're not gonna turn out the same way as Detroit because it's a totally different set of circumstances. But I can't help but be apprehensive. Yeah, apprehensive, and also just freaked out by the fact that like the same urban renewal that really fucked up a lot of American cities, you know, like 50, 60, 70, you know, 40 years ago is like, they're selling us the same jive. It was, it never, it never stopped. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Cause like right now, like even when I was talking about, um, when I worked that summer in Boston, they had this, they had almost a circle of project developments, mm-hmm. like housing developments, urban, you know, housing, public housing rather. And, it was so bad that it was almost like, almost like in the wire. I don't know. Did you? You didn't really watch Wire. Right? I watched Wire. Okay. We so, all had free HBO at Howard. Right. Right. So, in like when they uh, set up Hamsterdam, mm. it was basically like a real life Hamsterdam. So like the cops did not go in that area. Boston in general, though, like I don't understand I mean, Boston. I can't even lie. Boston is like we yeah, didn't I mean, bring a Bostonian a- up in here because Boston is. <laughs> indecipherable to me i mean this is how it's dictated to me so they were telling me about this and then so there was a big big uh controversy where there was this this kind of like middle-aged white woman who said that this black man wearing a uh michael jordan jersey i think raped her and murdered her kids oh my god so she lied oh, and the cops the cops like really really crack down all of like you receive just mass arrests 
of uh, black men all over the neighborhood. Before or after she, they found out the, she Right died. after. Oh, okay. Right after. Like immediately after. No, no, immediately after they found out that, uh, immediately after her. Before they found out that. Oh, before they found out she, she lied. lied. Okay. So like, yeah. So like, there were all these mass arrests and everything like that. And so like, around the same, around the same time, they basically decided that this, the public housing there, like, is shit's got stopped. Like the drugs, shut the crime, they shut, shut it down. down. So like, they like infiltrated the entire, like they raided everything. And, you know, they, um, they eventually like really, really lowered the crime initially in the neighborhood a little bit, but then they raised all of the public housing and built mixed income developments. So you had like, you had people who were supposed to be, uh, upper middle class mm-hmm. and like, um, I guess middle middle class and and in addition to people who were living in public housing all staying in the same area mm-hmm. um, that was how they envisioned it and so I mean of course you had the reality of gentrification where you had a lot of like majority of the people who were in the, the public housing were displaced and had to go somewhere else mm-hmm. but the people who were allowed to stay they found really significant clashes with the people who um, had moved into the neighborhood yeah. and they couldn't sustain the the mixed income part of it so a lot of times they just reformatted the housing and then you know continue to make it public housing um and so the neighborhoods really really struggled with that same thing similar thing happened in chicago where you had uh, you had a it was it was a slightly different set of circumstances because the management company of these mixed income developments had like developed these really really draconian like um, like just extremely unfair authoritative like policies towards the people who were in the public housing portion of the developments. Mm-hmm. So like they would regulate what they wore when they could leave Yo. and enter their their house. What? Like, Wait, what year are you talking about? I'm talking about the last like 15 years. I'm talking about now. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm talking about now. I'm, I'm actually speechless and I don't know if you've ever witnessed that before. I apologize. So, you know, they were, it would be for, um, so. Wait, I, hold on. I heard stories. Wait, wait, wait. That's not legal. Sorry, I used to work in housing. That's not legal. I mean, I don't know. They did. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. So. That's so not legal. Yo, that's so not legal. Go ahead. I don't know. I don't know. So this is how that shit kind of went down. Like they would have situations where people were throwing part, like the people who made money or mm-hmm. who were upper middle class, quote unquote, um, they would throw parties. And then, you know, the people who lived in the public house were like, okay, we want to have a get together too. The um, upper class residents of this development would call the police. They would get shut down. And that would be a mark on whether or not they could continue <sighs> to stay in their homes. Now, that's a bigger that's a bigger question, though. And that's the thing that's been really blowing. That's the thing that's been weighing on my mind for the past, you know, the past couple of days since we decided to talk about this is we already know that what we already know that gentrification in its current form, in its current, yeah, in its current form can ravage a lot of things about communities as it brings, you know, things like we discussed, like access, more access to food. Um, the dissolution of food deserts and increased police presence, things that everybody likes, better schools, things that everybody likes. Um, but you're also getting rid of, you know, all of these other things like people and like um, a neighborhood's flavor, a neighborhood's identity. You can be um, dis- dissolving and getting rid of those things. But like how, you know, okay, so an answer is to have economically mixed housing. An answer is to be able to have policy. But like policy is on paper. Yeah. And the housing is nothing but a building. When you put the people in there, this shit's gonna get real. 
Shit gets real. And I like I, I wonder like how how do we account for that? And if it's one of those things where like you said, this is the story that you just told me about Chicago. If that's something that couldn't last without the within the past decade, it makes me wonder, like, when I think of economically diverse housing, I don't think that you're gonna put people together in the first two, three, four, five years even. It's gonna um, work. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I would think that like maybe a decade from now we can be able to have a healthy mix, right? But how, if it couldn't last within the past decade, what do you need? Like, what do you, what do you, what do you need to be able to make that work? I don't know. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue is they. We and like, have, can you even force that? Can are there is there anything that you can do to make that a livable situation? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think the issue, the large issue with those types of situations is. You, the people moving in who are quote unquote middle class, they're the ones generating the money. So they are, their needs and their preferences are prioritized mm-hmm. over the needs and preferences of the people who actually. That's like basic econ, basic capitalism. Yeah. Um, and that just basically creates an environment right for discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I've been, I was thinking a lot, like, same thing. I've been thinking about how do you stop this. And honestly, the only thing the only thing that I really could go back to, let's work backwards. People are moving into these neighborhoods mm-hmm. because they're cheap. Mm-hmm. They're cheap because there are people who are primarily in lower, like, um, in a lower economic class, mm-hmm. quote unquote. There's lack of job opportunity. There's a higher rate of crime. So, like, Job opportunity. It's going to be difficult. We can't. I mean, obviously, we're struggling to create jobs. We can't just create jobs right now. So, yeah. how do you get? How do you get those people to have better jobs? You got to have increased education, right? But you can't get the educational funding. I think that the thing that like brings me the one sliver, sliver of hope. Oh, you have it. It's small. It's all you, it's all you got. <laughs> this Go little ahead. light. Go ahead. This little light. Go ahead. Is universal pre-K because. Okay, wait, can we just pause for a second and just admit what that you just like took a hard left? I'm no. with you. No, I'm with you. You see but do you see? No, where I understand going? no no, I understand what you mean, but when you talk about universal pre K, that opens up like a whole it opens up a whole other conversation. That True. like not like I mean, I'm willing to have it. It's totally I mean, above both of our have this I was right gonna now. say we don't have the time. It's above both of our pay grades. We haven't read enough, we don't have enough education. But, no, but I'm with you. I'm I with think you. That- Universal pre-K is a huge step to fighting gentrification because, and I mean, I could be wrong. I, I would actually well, well, love for just... someone to, this is extremely complicated. I'm not saying in terms of its implementation right now is correct or, you know, like anything. But what I'm saying is with, it, it, like studies show when you have quality you know, when you start kids off right with quality education, true, they are able to they are able to process and they're able to grow within their educational environment. Well, I agree with that. To but a larger then, degree, then they're better prepared for more job opportunities. Then they are potentially able to stay in their own communities. To I'm make- with you on that. You know that I'm, I mean, I, there's no way that I would, I would disagree with, with that as a positive and with that as something that could help toward getting, yeah, potentially help toward getting to, um, us having healthier urban communities in general, but there are so, like I said, yeah, like I said, we don't have the time. There are so many other factors that go into even just making that work and having the resources for that. I mean, when you're talking about something like universal pre-K, it's like, we got to, that's like, that's like, 
I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't even have anything to say in response to that because there are so many other structures that exist around that 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 would support that 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 would have to be dis. Uh, see, when I say dismantle, dismantle Yo, is like let's the, dismantle. You it. sound so wild. Dismantle is like the that's like the wildest word that I feel like we could say. We have let's to dismantle, dismantle these shit. structures. But yes, dismantle. See, you brought structures into it. I'm trying to avoid the s word, but. Yeah, well, you'd have to. I mean, that's the dis, that's like you'd have to dismantle so many other things. I understand what you're saying, but all I'm saying is I think that creates that creates. And even still, you'd have to wait pipeline. like you'd have to wait what one two generations just yeah. to be able to see the fruits of that. I mean, what? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't disagree with what you. What gets better now? <laughs> that's a good point. But I'm curious. I'm I'm I'm. We're obviously. I mean, we're open. We're both yeah. of us are totally people when it comes to things like this. Yeah. But so I'm. I'm very open to reading, know, learning more. You know, watching things, talking to people, being educated. But I'm curious as to what. I'm like you know my like mid to late twenties. What happens in the next ten years? What happens that I'm responsible for? What can I? What can I do that I'm responsible for in the next ten years to make this less of a problem? Yeah, let's like not so much of a scary thing, and yeah, just to make this less of like it feels like you know how people talk about deforestation. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's just like oh, it's just kind of like you got clutch your chest because you're just like, damn, there's no trees. Like, damn, there's no more black folks in urban areas (laughs) who can live okay. Like, what could what can I? What can we do? Like people who like you and I are, are people who have education. We have resources. What do people in our position do? What do people in our generation in our position do to be able to make this less devastating and to be able to make it so that we can build toward a future that ha- that can that can support diverse, like truly diverse communities? Like wh- I don't know. Well, it's been good talking to you. It's been good talking to you too. <laughs> I don't. I don't have the answer. I don't have. I, mean, I, don't, I don't have think, a single. And one. I don't think we can even get. No, we can't even get to it. But right thank now. you all but for listening. Yeah, this is this, this was is good. good. And if you have anything, honestly, like like I said, we are both lay people. If you have anything that you could suggest to us, or even, I mean, I would love to to know the flaws and even the things that we said. Oh, like, I would I mean, love because they're tell us where bad. we're wrong, please, please. We would. I would love. To, I'm. I'm. This is something I'm interested in that I neither one of us can really explore within the confines of our day jobs. So any any information that you guys that, that have would be extremely helpful. Well, it's been this real. Is fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Talk soon. All right. Peace. Pandora makes it easy for you to find your favorite music. Discover new artists and genres by selecting any song or album, and we'll make you a personalized station for free. Download on the Apple App Store or Google Play and enjoy the soundtrack to your life.